Welcome to Lifelines, the radio program of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. With me today is Tim Broderick, a board member of the Federation and leader of Erie's People for Life. Welcome, Tim. Good Good morning, Maria. It's so good to have you with us today. Now, Tim, to start out the show, can you tell me, have you always been pro-life, or was there a specific incident that made you become pro-life? Well, Maria, there were no uh, really earth-shaking incidents. Um, how I guess I would say there's never been a time where I've been pro-choice, but I think it was a gradual awakening uh, in terms of becoming pro-life. I remember hearing about the subject for the first time when I was in high school. New York had just legalized abortion, and there was talk about people going to New York to get an abortion. I remember that, but I don't remember it really making much difference to me. I just something I didn't pay attention to. So it was gradual. Um, and uh, one thing that kind of got my attention was somebody handed me a pamphlet about abortion and had some pictures that showed abortion. And that was so um, just after high school. And looking at those pictures did have a profound effect on me. And I, you know, I, I said, this could be somebody's mother or father or grandmother. It was a human being. And uh, so I, I think uh, from that time on, I would have wanted everybody to know that I was quote unquote pro-life. But still, I didn't know what to do about it. And that was, you know, that took some more time. You know, I remember reading a book later that ex- explained, des- described late-term abortion. And that's when I think I got some backbone and I said, this is something that can't be allowed. This is something that, you know, I need to do something about personally. So when you learned about that late-term abortion, is that when your pro-life activism began? Well, still, it was kind of a gradual thing. Um, one, I remember reading the advice uh, that uh, you know a person should learn more about the subject. If if you if you have concerns, learn about abortion. And uh, I was doing that, and I came across another piece of advice that said get connected with a local pro-life organization. And um, and that's what I did. I don't even remember how I made that connection, but I remember going to a meeting, and probably the only important thing that happened was somebody got my name and phone number, and uh, I started getting calls um, to uh, do some volunteering, which I was, you know, happy to do. That's incredible. Now, Tim, what was your first experience of the March for Life like? Um, that was in 1996, and it really, really was overwhelming for me. Um, that was really my first time to be in Washington, D.C. for more than an hour or two. And uh, so it was kind of a mixture of patriotic feelings and the sense of being with good people, uh, wholesome people, uh, it was, of course, a very peaceful event, but uh, I came back on cloud nine, and it took me two or three days to really digest everything, and um, I've never missed a March for Life since, so I guess that would tell you something. So that first March, it really exceeded your expectations? 
Yeah, I was um, I was not really expecting very much. I thought that was more of an entertainment thing, and I wanted to be more of a serious pro-life guy. Um, but um, it, it turned out to be quite an awakening. It was a beautiful day, too. Uh, sunny, blue skies all day long. And, uh, you know, after the march, we went in to um, uh, listen to, um, I guess it was one of the senators at the time. And uh, so that, that added to the experience as well. Um, so, so, yeah, that was, um, I came home and, and wrote a, a paper about my experiences. It was like three or four pages long, and um, they ended up putting it in the, in the People for Life newsletter here. That's wonderful. How has the March for Life changed over the years that you've seen? Yeah. Um, well, I go back quite a few years, and it's hard to remember everything. And, in fact, I probably wasn't taking everything in because it was just, as I said, already overwhelming for me. But I'm sure it was much smaller at the time. Um, we, At the time, the, the uh, rally before the march was held in the Ellipse, uh, behind the White House, and I'm sure that would that space would never hold the, the number of people that go to the march these days. I think uh, over the years uh, we've seen a lot more young people coming, uh, student groups and so forth. Uh, it seems to me that uh, originally when I went in 96, it was mostly families and uh, people beyond school age. So now we see just throngs of, of young people, and and I think the march is uh, the uh, program has changed a bit. At, at, and uh, it was always great. Uh, I had the pleasure of speaking with Nellie Gray, the original founder of the March for Life, a number of times on the phone, and she was really wonderful. Uh, but I think it was uh, uh, kind of heavy on religious leaders and uh, government officials, members of Congress. And now the uh, the, the program's been brought into uh, bring in people from many different walks of life, different speakers, and uh, to appeal to the young people. The, the use of technology has obviously you know, improved a lot. So, um, well, I guess I could say it's just uh, all the more exciting. And, uh, you know, now it takes it might take a couple hours just to get out on Constitution Avenue in March because of the, so many people. But every minute of it is very interesting. I love it every year. Now, as I recall, there was one year where the March for Life basically became a snowball, and I think you were stranded on the highway. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah, that's one March for Life we will never forget. Uh, the weather reports were a little bit scary, but uh, according to uh, the best reports we could find, uh, we thought we would be able to get in and out of, the, of Washington ahead of the snowstorm. And, uh, you know, we attracted some local media attention uh, because of our so quote-unquote gamble, you might call it. Um, and uh, I remember standing at the, at the, in Constitution Avenue waiting to get underway, waiting for the march to uh, start to move, and the snow started falling. Uh, not real heavily, but it was sort of ominous, just a light, light snow uh, that uh, just, just continued. Um, but in fact, we, we left a little bit early and we did get out of DC ahead of the snow, uh, the snow. There were, there, there might have been a couple of inches on the ground, but on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, 
uh, it turned out there was an accident ahead of us on a long grade, and um, they weren't able to clear the road. So everybody was motionless there, and the snow just continued. Not 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 a lot at one time, but we were there all night. And by the next morning, there were several feet of snow, and we spent the entire day there until after dark the next evening. And, um, you know, I guess the strange part was we didn't know if we were going to be there two days or three days or all week. Um, but thankfully, it was just about a 24-hour uh, thing where we were stuck there, and we got home almost exactly 24 hours behind schedule. But, you know, the wonderful thing was we had, uh, I believe, four buses that year. And um, while everybody was safe and, um, and you know, there were no medical problems or anything like that, but, um, but everybody was in such good spirits. Everybody just took it in stride. And, in fact, um, oh, I remember one little girl started to cry when the buses started to move because she was having so much fun she didn't want to leave. <laughs> now that's dedication. Tell me, yeah, <laughs> what sure. made you get involved with Erie's People for Life? Well, I, um, I guess I already mentioned that a little bit. I, I just um, took the advice of getting connected with a with a local organization, and then I guess I didn't have too much choice. I just kept getting calls from the folks, uh, from the leaders. And uh, they've just offered me ways to, uh, as they say, make a difference. Um, uh, some of my first assignments were delivering carnations to churches that participated in the annual Mother's Day Carnation fundraiser. And then they had me distributing voter guides from the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Um, and it, it seemed like uh, I was glad to at least feel like I was doing something, you know. And um, just... Um, once you get involved, it's hard to hard to get away. Tim, who are some of the famous speakers you've had for your events? Um, yeah, we have a um, breakfast every January, and we we try to to find a, a a well-known speaker. Something we try to make it a special event. It's just the the one opportunity a year uh, a, a year that we take, and. Um, in 1998, we invited Senator Rick Santorum, and that was one of the first times we had somebody from beyond our local area, uh, and the attendance just surpassed all expectations. We had over 600 people, and for some large metropolitan areas, that might not sound like much, but for us, it was more than probably almost triple what we usually uh, had at that event. And the following year, we had Dr. Bernard Nathanson, the former abortionist. Um, and then over the years, we've had um, we've been very fortunate, very blessed to have speakers such as Gianna Jessen, uh, Dr. Tony Levitino, who was somebody I met at the March for Life one year at the uh, March for Life Expo. We've had Lila Rose and uh, Billy Graham's daughter, Ruth, and uh I had the opportunity to meet her at the uh, Pro-Life Federation annual banquet. Uh, Wesley Smith, George Weigel, and last year was Ubianaju Ekocha, better known as Uju. And uh, there for the first time we had somebody from across the Atlantic. She lives in England, and in fact she's a native of Nigeria. So uh, we were 
especially excited about that. It's, it's, um, we've been very blessed to, to catch these, uh, excellent speakers. You've really had the pro-life all-stars, I think. Tell us about abortionist Steve Brigham and your campaign to get his abortion facility out of Erie. Okay. Well, you know, I've never met Stephen Brigham in person. He really didn't come to Erie, Erie very frequently, but he did have an abortion facility here. And uh, the news first got out that he'd purchased property here in 1999. And uh, I myself, along with some of the other leaders, decided, you know, we should strike while the iron is hot. People were very upset, very concerned. So we called for uh, demonstrations. And uh, the demonstrations were held outside of the uh, the facility that he had purchased. I should explain, he uh, it was a, a large office building that was a condominium uh, arrangement, and he bought a large section of the third floor of the building. And, uh, of course, at first we thought he'd be doing abortions uh, very quickly, but it turned out that uh, that didn't begin until September of 2003. Now, during all that time, we had demonstrations twice a week, and the turnout was very, very encouraging. We had we would have 40 or 50 people on a Saturday. And then in 2003, they did finally open up, and uh, we had uh, people on the sidewalks outside the building, you know, peacefully demonstrating. And there must have been three or 400 people that, you know, uh, that arrived and, and left, and, you know, and more people would come in. Uh, all that day. Um, after that, the, the, uh, the abortion facility was open for about three and a half years until 2007. Uh, our best uh, advantage came about when one of the doctors in the building offered us uh, a suite of rooms, and they were located directly across the hallway from the abortion facility. So we, we learned a lot. We got to interact with... Um, the, uh, the abortion facility staff, and um, um, and on occasion we were able to um, sit down and talk with uh, one of the um, abortion-bound women. Um, and this was a, a big advantage because um, being in such an intimate relationship with the uh, abortion people, we knew what was going on. We there were four different doctors that, that came over those three and a half years to do abortions, and we knew exactly who they were. One was a local doctor, and uh, when we were able to expose, tell the community who this doctor was, I think perhaps out of shame or, or some reason, he he only stayed there a few weeks. And, uh, and several of the other doctors were... Um, uh, investigated by, by the state, one for uh, li- uh, licensing problems and insurance problems, and one for um, uh, drugs, for improperly prescribing narcotics, so to speak. And we, uh, I can tell you, we're kind of directly responsible for getting the state involved in, the, in several of these investigations. Um, and Finally, the last doctor, after being investigated, left town pretty abruptly. That was in 2007, and they, the plan, their 
plan, they said, was to uh, reopen as soon as they got another doctor. That never happened. And oh, around about 2010, after being closed from 2007, they uh, pulled up stakes and the moving vans came and took everything out. And uh, abort- Erie's been abortion-free ever since. That's tremendous. You're listening to Lifelines, the radio program of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. I'm your host, Maria Gallagher. With me today is Tim Broderick of Erie's People for Life. Tim, what do you think is the greatest challenge to pro-life activism? Well, Maria, for me, it's trying to strike the proper balance between religion and politics. Abortion uh, brings in both of those uh, aspects. And... um, Like myself, a lot of people who are committed and actively involved in fighting abortion, trying to improve people's appreciation for the value of every human life, um, we look to our religious faith, and it it motivates and sustains us. And uh, traditionally, people look to their churches for moral guidance as well. However... um, As Americans, we strongly believe in the First Amendment and the idea of freedom of religion. That is very, very much an intimate part of the American way of life. Uh, And so we we run the risk sometimes of, of creating the perception that abortion is just a question of religious preference or religious belief. And, uh... And nobody wants, nobody pro-life or pro-choice or in, in between wants to force anybody to believe like they believe. So I think it's very important when we uh, are talking about these issues in public, uh, we must learn and then remember how to speak in public terms and talk about as much as possible facts, rational arguments, and even pra- pragmatic arguments like what about what if the population collapses, uh, and which is which is really happening in many places? Um, but of course, the core principle is still that the inalienable, excuse me, right to life, and and that um, value that really can't be proven scientifically or anything else. It's it's a uh, it's a self-evident kind of thing that we either, I guess, we recognize or we don't, the, the, the value of our own lives and the value of each and every other lives. But I would just say um, one thing we could do is, as much as possible, avoid saying, I believe. Like, for instance, I believe life begins at conception. Well, we know that it begins at conception, and it's not something that we uh, have to be told by our, our uh, religious denomination or church and uh, instead of believe, I think we need to say, I think, um, or I know, or I can't deny that, for instance, again, life begins at conception. And um, we, we want to bring everybody on board, regardless of where they are in terms of uh, their religious walk or uh, their church attendance, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, uh, one of our speakers, Wesley Smith, made a remark as I was taking him back to the airport. Religion is our greatest asset, and it's also our greatest 
a problem. I, I don't know if those were his exact words, but, um, you know, it's just everything needs to be uh, kept in perspective and, and everything needs to work together. Good point. Hope that makes sense. It, it does, indeed. Are you surprised by the efforts in New York and Illinois to expand abortion up to the moment of birth? Um, well, I'm very disturbed by it, but I don't really think it is that surprising. In the first place, the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade very much opened the door to third trimester abortions. And uh, But the, the, the wording of Roe v. Wade is very subtle and they it they they use words that can have double meanings let's say um and uh in fact uh roe versus wade says that the states must allow abortion even in the third trimester for the health of the woman and the word health is very tricky uh the health uh in in the other decisions you probably know uh doe versus bolton Health was defined pretty much to encompass any anything that has to do with the well-being of the woman in in the estimation of the abortionist. So that third trimester abortion has always been there. But like I say, they were subtle. But now these states like New York and Illinois are uh, making you know uh, they're being very crass about it and they're celebrating it. So that's that's a problem. You know they. Uh, the politicians used to say abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Well, they dropped the rare and started saying it should be safe and legal. Now they want it safe, legal, and everywhere, and they want everybody to cheer about it. So that's the disturbing part. But, you know, uh, this kind of polarization or this uh, uh, the taking abortion to a more and more extreme position, uh, to me, uh, is very reminiscent of the story of slavery. In the United States, Some, I've been very interested in, in the abolition movement because of the, all the parallels with abortion. And um, it, you know, in the early 19th century, even the slaveholders would say, "Well, it's it's a necessary evil," but they didn't, you know, uh, they they tried to stay, I guess you could say, low key. Uh, but as pressure mounted from the abolitionists, just like the pro-life people today are creating more and more pressure by simply by exposing the truth. Well, as the, as the people became more aware of the evils of slavery, they said maybe it isn't so necessary. And then the, sla- the slavery people sort of changed their approach and started saying it was a positive good. It was necessary and um, uh, the way God intended it. And, and so they sort of came out in the open, and uh, and promoted slavery, as I say, as a positive good. And this uh, got the attention of others and helped help to uh, to turn more people towards the abolitionist way of thinking. Tim, do you believe that Roe versus Wade will be overturned? I really, you know, my answer to that is. It could very easily happen. We have a lot of good elected officials. Uh, very, very few people are completely satisfied with Roe versus Wade. From what I understand, only single people 
people in the single digits uh, approve uh, third trimester abortions. Very few people. And yet that is provided for in Roe versus Wade. So it could easily change, but I don't know if it's inevitable. Uh, one thing I know for sure is things, our country isn't going to stay the same if with abortion as it is. Uh, uh, such a denial, the, the denial of the right to life is the most fundamental denial of human right, rights we can have. If, if, uh, Every human being doesn't have a right to live. Uh, what what rights do they really have? And so I, I see. I think we're either going to turn back the abortion problem, or we're going to see a continued erosion of human rights, of the idea that the individual is inviolable and that the individual has rights from God. And I hope I hope it doesn't go that way. But I think it it still depends on what the American people are willing to do to uh, correct the problem. Tim, what was it like to win the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Leadership Award? Oh, that was a really nice honor, Maria. And, um, you know, it's kind of a, a little bit of assurance that even at the local level, the little things that we do kind of in obscurity uh, do fit into the big picture and that all the parts, all the people and different parts of the country working together um, are making a difference and do have a role to play. So that was great. I really appreciated it. Tim, if people want to learn more about People for Life and your work, what should they do? And speak up. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, we are on online. We have a website, peopleforlife.life. Uh, we're active on Facebook as well. Our main Facebook page would be um, facebook.com slash, again, People for Life. And, uh, you know, those are probably the best ways to start. Maybe I, if, if somebody would like to call, the number is 814-882-1333. We'd love to hear from them. And can they uh, contact you through email? Oh, yes, that's right. The email address is office at peopleforlife.org. That's wonderful. And I can just say it's been a pleasure to work with Tim over the years. He is an inspiration. That's why he won the award. Uh, it's really gratifying to see him overcome so many challenges and obstacles and continue the fight for life day in and day out, year in and year out. He's really uh, a pioneer in the field, and we're grateful to have him. We've been talking with Tim Broderick, head of Erie's People for Life. Thank you for listening to Lifelines, the radio program of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. I'm your host, Maria Gallagher. I'm the legislative director of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. And remember, there's always a reason to choose life. <laughs>